Hey everybody, this is James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast, and tonight I want to talk to you about critical race theory. I want to try to help you understand it. Now, unlike a lot of the podcast episodes that I do, normally I try to kind of prepare what I'm going to say, spell it out. I actually just want to talk now off the cuff, talk to you about critical race theory as I understand it. I want to try to tell you where it came from. I want to try to explain what it believes, what its fundamental tenets are, and kind of paint the picture of the critical race theory worldview for you so that you can understand it as it sees itself and as I see it as somebody who understands it but doesn't believe it. So the historical context of critical race theory is kind of the place to begin. Um, We want to understand critical race theory as the critical theory of race, even though it arose specifically in the context of law, uh, at Harvard Law, as a matter of fact. We want to understand it also in the broader sense that it has taken up uh, with the long-standing tradition of critical theory, reaching back into the 1920s and 1930s, which itself was built off of the adaptation of Karl Marx's conflict theory to social and cultural features rather than economic features. So we have to understand that long history to understand critical race theory. We also have to understand that there are different branches of critical race theory, some that are more in line with that critical theory school that would be materialist in orientation, or perhaps even socialist in orientation, where race is theorized in terms of, if materialism, it's it's theorized in terms of the ways that institutions, laws, and the various uh, concrete operations of society contribute to and maintain racism. And the goal of the critical aspect of this is to try to make that racism more visible so that people will want to reject it and the institutions and structures in society that create it. In the socialist regard, it would actually try to understand how Capitalism is intrinsically somehow a white phenomenon that has exploited, especially black men, to extract their labor uh, while largely excluding black women. And so there's a socialist branch of critical race theory that sees racism as a manifestation of capitalism. And we do have to understand that those strains exist. They are not the most pressing for what we want to talk about tonight. Um... The postmodern variant on it is the dominant variant, and I want to try to make clear how postmodernism got mixed into this way of thinking about the world. So the fundamental belief of critical race theory begins with the idea, with a set of ideas that are that is in fact that are in fact correct. Those ideas are that race is largely socially constructed, and that the reason that we constructed race in the first place was in order to do uh, racism, particularly against blacks who would have been taken up into the Atlantic slave trade, but also against uh, other races that were non-white in order to justify colonialism and taking over their place in the world. Um, But something definitely changed. And that thing that changed was that in the uh, roughly 16th century in Europe, people started to think about race in terms of heritability. So this becomes a very interesting point. 
Anybody who studied the history of humanity would recognize that colonialism and slavery have been sort of human constants until quite recently. In fact, our great experiments with liberalism seem to be what have ended colonialism and ended slavery. As a matter of fact, they ended slavery first, and then once we wrought upon ourselves the world wars, especially World War II, we had to face the fact that colonialism taking over other territories by force, uh, whether colonial or imperial force, to try to build empires, is not compatible with a humanity that has aircraft that can carpet bomb, or nuclear weapons, or machine guns, or tanks. Uh, that was really the lesson of World War One and World War Two. So colonialism was a human constant. Racism, I'm sorry, slavery was a human constant, but uh, racism had a particular uh, beginning in the 16th century with the idea of heritability rising up in the uh, in the in the English context primarily, where the English naturalists were starting to understand how the world worked a little bit better. Before that, people mostly thought that traits like skin color hair texture and so on had a lot to do with your environment. It was not known why people had the hair and skin color that they had or the hair texture that they had. They thought it had something to do with the environment. So you might imagine someone thinking, well, uh, people who live in, say, sub-Saharan Africa, it's very hot there, very sunny there, so they have darker skin because the, the sun tans them permanently dark and they, their babies are born with dark skin because that trait is temporarily passed on because they have no idea how genetics work, and it, the baby comes out the same as the parents uh, temporarily, and then the environment kind of locks that in. And that was sort of the pre-naturalism view of, of human difference. There was definitely some sense that, that there was similarity, obviously, from parent. A child, and you can see all the way back even in like third century Han Dynasty China that examples were given where they thought that European people were clearly descended from monkeys, so descent and heritability were talked about, but they weren't really understood. The rise of naturalism changed everything. And so with the rise of naturalism, you now had the ability to believe that certain people were born into a particular race, and this was happening in a context where people who seem to have been born with a paler skin in the European and especially uh, Spanish and French and English and Scottish contexts had the capacity to figure out a great deal about the world and give themselves a lot of power they didn't understand or have any reason to feel like they needed to steward responsibly. And so they used that to justify saying that darker skinned races must in fact be different they must in fact be inferior, which justifies why it is okay to try to uh, enslave or civilize them through colonialism and the barbarism that was attached to those behaviors. And this is a very poignant point that the introduction of naturalism, which is kind of like the precursor to science, this isn't biology, don't get confused. This is a precursor to biology by many centuries. You had no idea Darwin was in, in the 1850s. And this would have been in the, the 1500s, so we're a long way from any robust understanding of biology. But nevertheless, heritability 
became the justification and these kind of proto-scientific discoveries that were enabling the inventions of things like cannons and other high technology that allowed colonialism to work uh, were all kind of happening concomitantly. So you have these people who are inventing this high technology who are starting to understand the world badly but better than their neighbors, taking up the human impulses to conquest and slavery and doing them. And they're now using something that is like proto-biology to justify it. And so this is different. This is new in the world. And so, for example, earlier on Twitter today, somebody sent me an Instagram thing that I guess has been going around, and it literally is talking about how white people have been superior, the white race has been superior to other races and black people in particular, according to the ideology of white supremacy, and I quote from the beginning of time, which is, of course, preposterous. It could not possibly be from the beginning of time, but this beginning to believe about the world in terms of a kind of proto-scientific naturalist pre or early enlightenment, this new rationalism that was taking hold in Europe that was also giving it great military advantage that it was using to very effective and barbarous ends, becomes the home base of the beginning of time, relevantly speaking, in terms of the current uh, kind of cultural epoch, which we would would call now, you know, modernity, the modern era, which followed the medieval period. So again, we're talking about roughly the last 500 years. So something had fundamentally changed. If you want to kind of think of it in a religious metaphor, uh, human beings, by developing naturalism or proto-science, starting to figure out about the world as being mostly Europeans who were adapting earlier observations that they uh, brought in from the uh, Middle East, which had preserved them from the Greeks, uh, which had kind of developed them earlier on. Very long history of the development of science that is very multicultural. Uh, but the Europeans started to really exploit this at the time, and you can think that's when, according to the gospel, if you will, or I guess the book of Genesis of critical race theory, that's when human beings ate from the tree of knowledge, and they were expelled from the garden because they now knew right from wrong. They now had this new power, and clearly they were rebelling against righteousness by deciding to use their new power to enslave and conquer, even though every other society had ever done that. They must have been like lions eating lettuce in comparison because they had not eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And of course, then you can easily see that the creation myth would cast colonialism as uh, the Cain and Abel story. So you now have Cain, uh, the descendant of those expelled from the garden, and that's the West with its knowledge, and you have the innocent Abel, and Cain drags Abel off into the field and murders him. And then the mark of Cain becomes whatever the mark of Europeanness is, which happens to be whiteness. And so you can kind of put a creation myth here that has everything to do with the rise of the earliest inklings of genuine science, genuine knowledge production, and eventually the full-blown uh, enlightenment and scientific revolution bringing that to fruit later. So the view in critical race theory is that this fundamentally changed the world, that is the beginning of time, and now socially constructed 
races entered the world for the first time for the purpose of conquest, for the purpose of slavery. Um, as we, meaning Helen Pluckrose and I, wrote in the Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality chapter of our forthcoming book, Cynical Theories, we said, this is important because naturalism and science were rapidly becoming a knowledge production, thus idea-legitimizing methodology the likes of which the world had never seen. It is the legitimization or the legitimizing authority of science that ultimately postmodernism rails against most vigorously. The rise of the sciences and of an intellectual and political culture that accepted science as legitimate together with the horrors of colonialism and the Atlantic slave trade led to a new social constructions of race. This we hear from the theorists today is the scientific origin of racism which can be taken to mean that these, dis that these discourses that misapplied very preliminary results from science allowed the first socially constructivist racists to come into existence. In other words, with this oversimplified, overreaching, and self-serving scientific categorization came social constructions associated with extremely low-resolution categories, being black, blackness, and being white, whiteness to which value judgments were soon attached. Enter racism as we understand it today. So I think that critical race theorists are right to see, to, to claim that racism uh, began, race and racism began through social constructions that were designed to do oppression. In other words, quite literally, white people did invent the concept, the modern social constructivist concept of race in order to do racism. That is a true claim that critical race theory makes. It's what critical race theory does with that claim that gets a bit out of control. So we can fast forward from the development of science. We can fast forward, in fact, to the, the school of critical theory, the Frankfurt School coming out of Frankfurt, Germany, which was adapting Marxist conflict theory to the idea that a socially stratified society has oppressor groups and oppressed groups, and the oppressed groups need to be awakened to the nature of their oppression, which the oppressors hide from them in various tricky ways. For the Frankfurt School, that would have been through ideology and hegemony. The beliefs of the elites are fed to the proles, and they are then internalized, and the Poor suckers believe that life is better than it really is for them, and so the critical theorist's job is to awaken that critical consciousness, as it came to be called later, awaken that awareness of the oppression. So it all became about agitating people to see how bad their lives are even when they liked them, so that they would want to effect a revolution, a revolution being the same revolution that Marx had predicted that had failed to manifest and that the critical theorists were dedicated to figuring out how to bring about despite the fact that it had failed. And their guess was that culture is more relevant to people's lives and economics, so we have to examine that. So the critical theory schools wanted to examine the idea of affecting liberation from systemic oppression. That's where these ideas started to come into the world, and that's where these ideas started to get attached to the different social categories, including race, also obviously sex with feminism, and gender later with gender studies, sexuality, and all of the rest, fatness, able-bodiedness, and so on. And so 
race became an oppressor versus oppressed narrative. This, of course, made a lot of sense at the time. I'm talking you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, even 1960s. This made an, an immense amount of sense. And so a number of different theorists looked at this issue, and in particular, a number of uh, black radical thinkers in the 1950s and 60s took a lot of inspiration from the critical theorist Herbert Marcuse, who was very famous in 1965 for writing a, uh, an essay titled Repressive Tolerance. The thesis of repressive tolerance was that in the post-fascism world, meaning in a world where fascism has ever arisen, and therefore a world that could give rise to fascism, we are constantly at red alert for the emergence of fascism, and so tolerance has to be rethought. Tolerance of fascist ideas as they grow is what allows people to support fascist ideas and ultimately vote fascists into power, which, once that has happened, creates a totalitarian regime that can't be undone. So Marcuse's point was that we cannot be tolerant of intolerance, and in fact that we should rise up against intolerance well before it has the possibility of blossoming into fascism. He discusses in that essay the role of violence, and he says that violence is always unethical, and then immediately follows that by saying, asking rhetorically, but when have ethics ever been relevant in the making of history? And then he goes on to explain that violence done for revolutionary means to affect liberation has a completely different ethical valence than violence done for reactionary means to maintain the status quo, which is inherently oppressive, including on vectors of race. So Herbert Marcuse had a student named Angela Davis. Angela Davis uh, said that she learned quite a lot from Marcuse in terms of how to be both an activist and a scholar at the same time, among other things, revolutionary as well. Angela Davis went on to inspire the entire first generation of uh, black feminist and critical race thinkers as those things emerged. She was very influential on them. And in particular, she being very neo-Marxist, like her mentor, uh, Marcusa, and maybe outright Marxist in many ways, she would have been in that kind of socialist or materialist analysis of race. This inspired very much a man named Derek Bell. Derek Bell was the first African-American uh, professor at Harvard Law, tenured professor at Harvard Law, and he um, is the half of the father, I guess. He's the father with, I guess, the mother being his student, Kimberly Crenshaw, of critical race theory. Uh, Derek Bell had a very pessimistic outlook. He uh, believed that racism is the ordinary state of society. He believed that uh, Dominant races, so white people don't give black people opportunities unless it's also in their own self-interest, and usually when they do so, they do so in a way that just increases the problems for black people. So that's a very cynical and pessimistic read of the advancement of racial progress. He analyzed very directly the Brown versus Board of Education decision in these terms and was very pessimistic about it, saying that it that desegregating schools actually harmed black people tremendously and it uh, opened up a whole raft of new problems 
for black students, black children, and black people in society in general. Very pessimistic uh, analysis. Of course, with all of these things, he had some points that we could acknowledge uh, to be fair to him, but the cynicism and the pessimism stand out when you look at, you know, he's making points, but he's being very cynical and pessimistic around those points. And this is a typical trick that we see in this kind of materialist uh, critical theory of race. That it's very pessimistic and it tends to cherry pick data to tell a negative story where maybe the negative story is not the best story to tell. So we can stop for a moment with Derrick Bell because we're going to back up. Derrick Bell, we're talking mostly the 1970s going into the 1980s. Uh, we're going to back up to the 19, I guess, 50s and 60s, but especially the 60s going into the 70s and talk about the emergence of postmodernism because postmodernism is important to the story because, as I said, there are materialist and socialist critical race theories. And then, on the other hand, there are postmodern critical race theories, and that is the one that is dominant today for the most part. So we have to understand the influence of postmodernism. So postmodernism comes along in the, it depends on how you want to characterize it, 1940s is when its earliest beginnings were uh, mostly in art as an aesthetic, but it made its way into philosophy, especially by the early 60s. You have characters in particular like Michel Foucault, who is very relevant to the way that, that postmodernism is used in critical race theory, who was remapping out the way that we believe that knowledge, power, and language are related to one another. As a matter of fact, uh, when I said that we were talking about the beginning of time for the critical race theorists being at the birth of kind of proto-scientific thought, Michel Foucault would, would say that the modern epistem, he wouldn't have characterized it quite that way, but the epistem, the, the, the overarching regime of truth and thought that characterizes the world that we would call the modern era began with the emergence of the earliest rumblings of science and became the scientific kind of paradigm. Those would not be his words, I want to be clear, but that's the, that is a characterization of how he thought about things. So when we hear a statement today, like at the beginning of time, or ever since the beginning of time, the white race has been superior to the, to the other races. The beginning of time being the beginning of naturalism and proto-science is consistent with the postmodern conception of how eras in history really work, and the, the, the contemporary theory is only concerned with today's existing uh, truth regime. So time before when science started to emerge is irrelevant. That's prehistory. That's not part of history. That's prehistory. And it's very important to understand that that's how they think about it. Foucault in particular, though, we should focus on, had this very interesting idea that power works through all individuals. So he took the critical theory school's idea of hegemony, that there is a set of ideologies and dominant culture that everybody kind of have to line up with. And uh, the critical theory school's belief was that the elites produce this and press it down on everybody, whereas Foucault said, no, it works through everybody. And in particular, Foucault also introduced the idea that knowledge is itself a political process. So knowledge and power are literally the same thing. They're two features of the same phenomenon. And the justification for that's a little bit difficult to understand, but it's not too hard to understand. Foucault's issue wasn't whether or not true and false things 
are knowable. It wasn't, in fact, it's not as bad as that. And his point was not that some statements are not true, or it was that the processes by which we dis determine which statements are true is inherently social and thus political. Some group of people that we might call scientists in general convene and they decide what methodologies are considered rigorous and they decide which methodologies are not. And depending on which scientists are allowed to have power over the other scientists or that group at the time, their influence is significant. And thus it's a political process that determines which methodology methodologies work. And it's a political process, therefore, that determines which statements are authenticated as true, how we authenticate them as true, and who gets to authenticate them as true. But because of Foucault's views about power that he adopted mostly from the critical school, it's believed that the biases of that group always infect, they're always self-serving biases that infect the situation. And so whoever got to authenticate knowledge as true, they had self-serving biases in, in, in their the patterns of thought, their ways of speaking, in particular the discourses that they would use, as Foucault would have put it. And those biases get baked into their cultural creations, including the method of determining what's true, so science. So since white Western men invented modern science, white Western male political bias became an intrinsic part of science. That's how they think about this. And so for Foucault, the question of whether or not a proposition that is regarded true is actually true in the sense that it corresponds in some faithful way to material reality. That may or may not be, but he thought it missed the point, and the point is to examine the truth of the fact that that is a political decision, that is a political process. And so the politics become relevant. The critical school, which is about liberation versus oppression, has a very clear take on this the dominant groups want to maintain their dominance intrinsically. They don't even realize they're doing it. They've internalized their dominance. Oppressed groups accept this and internalize their oppression. That's false consciousness in both cases. And thus their self-serving biases create the systemic oppression that has to be exposed to affect liberation from that systemic oppression. So the critical approach at this point becomes relevant because where Foucault said it's a political process that determines who gets to determine what is true and false and thus what is true and false. That political process is imbued with biases that are inherently unfairly biased toward the dominant groups in society and inherently unfairly biased against the oppressed groups in society. So the epistemology gets upended into a political regime where that knowledge which has been excluded or marginalized for any reason whatsoever, even if it's being without methodology or with only a poor methodology, was done only because of illegitimate, self-serving, dominant politics trying to maintain itself. It's a, it's a subtle point, and it, Again, it's one of those things where if you squint really hard, you say, yeah, there is a point there, you know, there's something there. But it's clearly also mostly wrong. It, the methodologies do actually matter, and we can actually get better answers to questions about the world, and that's how we know which methodologies matter. We don't do so just by a, a political process, even if politics have to touch it. 
We do so by a process that values asking the world the question and seeing what the world says and letting it answer for us. And the politics are really a habit of deferring to that. So Foucault wasn't quite right about this. And certainly the critical theorists weren't quite right about this. So we go forward from Foucault, and Foucault caught fire in the English-speaking context really very near the end of his life, getting almost to 1980 before that happened, maybe into the 70s a little bit. And in particular, all this being very leftist academic theory, he really gained a lot of prominence with people who were studying issues uh, in the kind of schools of critical theory being that postmodernism is itself very uh, very much oriented within the schools of critical theory. Uh, it's not neo-Marxist specifically, it's actually post-Marxist. It's more like they gave up on Marxism and just wanted to crap on that too, but still very uh, much in that kind of radical Marxist-leftist milieu of thought. And so these scholars, mostly in this case would have been feminists, and thus black feminists are very relevant, especially queer black feminists, because queer theory very heavily took up postmodern thought. Before that, of course, the postcolonial theorists took it up, and there's obviously connections to colonialism, slavery, and this race there. So black feminism started to have a major current of very postmodern thought or sympathies toward the postmodern conception of power and structure in society. And they started to take it on. They had their skepticism of it, though. They had their reservations. And in particular, uh, that set of reservations was mostly resolved, or that set of problems that arose from those reservations was mostly resolved by Kimberly Crenshaw, who I mentioned before as Derek Bell's uh, doctoral student. And um, Kimberly Crenshaw figured out a way to marry the critical theory to the postmodern theory. And she did so in a very famous paper that arguably changed the world in 1991. I would not say it changed the world mostly for the better, but we'll see how things bounce out in the longer run. So far, not good. In, in, in that paper titled Mapping the Margins, Kimberly Crenshaw begins by describing those margins that we need to map out. So what are they? She says that black feminism exists at the margins of black liberationist, which is to say Marcusean neo-Marxist radical kind of black power politics, identity politics specifically, uh, in the, the very radical black vein. And then at the intersection of, of that and the, the margins of feminism, meaning primarily kind of this radical feminism that was ascendant, which then started to be identified as white feminism, saying that it was disinterested in uh, black issues, whereas black liberationism was mostly interested in black male issues and didn't pay much attention to black women and black feminism, and particularly queer black feminism, which was emerging out of the national queer theory at the same time. And so those are the margins. Black feminism and queer black feminism become the margins of already radical politics uh, of feminism and black liberationism. And then she goes on in this paper by the end, to explain that, uh, well, I should say she goes on in this paper to launch into a lengthy criticism both of liberalism, just like her mentor Derek Bell would have taught, and he would have agreed with Angela Davis, and this very kind of Marcusean line of thought that uh, 
that liberalism hides, it tells a lie, it misleads the oppressed into believing they have a better chance of success than they really do. And so liberalism is part of the problem, and liberalism has major, uh, major problems that need to be critiqued. They need to have the oppressions inherent in liberalism made more visible, and it needs to be undone. This liberation from a systemic oppression at the heart of that project is really the liberation from liberalism, which of course is a bit humorous when you phrase it that way. And then simultaneously, she went on to criticize postmodernism. And she said that postmodern theory had a problem, and that the problem was that it failed to recognize that some ideas can't be deconstructed. So postmodernism wanted to take apart all of, ide all of the ideas and deconstruct our entire relationship to meaning-making and knowledge production and kind of render all of it absurd. It was a very nihilistic, tearing-apart uh, project that, that through its early phases, Foucault, Derrida, the famous ones, Lyotard, we would say that it was in its high deconstructive phase, just kind of tearing everything apart. And Kimberly Crenshaw said, people who suffer oppression based on their race cannot tear apart race. Only a privileged person who doesn't have to think about race could deconstruct race. So that's a privileged position. That is an oppressor class thing you can do. And the oppressed have no such advantage. So we have to criticize that aspect of postmodernism, that it can be used to deconstruct anything, that there is no objective truth that is accessible, and that everything is mere political uh, process. Because the systemic oppression by race or sex or gender or sexuality or other identity factors, Crenshaw argued, is real. And it cannot be deconstructed because people who experience it have no such luxury. So she proposed that this contemporary politics, as she phrased it, which by, by which she meant these uh, queer black feminism at the margins of black liberationism and radical feminism and the national queer theory, needed to be linked to a kind of more, uh, more accepting of this objectivity of, of oppression view in postmodernism. So the idea was we're going to take this deconstructive idea, we're going to take away the ability to deconstruct oppression based on identity, so that way we can still do our radical liberation politics. And then she forwards the idea that we should use um, identity first thinking. So she explicitly says that there is something more and something more important in the idea I am black, capital B black, then I am a person who happens to be black. And the reason she gives is that I am black forwards the black identity, which is useful for radical liberationist identity politics. And I am a person who happens to be black forwards the humanity of the person ahead of their identity, which is a position in universal liberalism. And then she weds this concept to postmodern theory, deconstruction of everything else. So it's a deconstruction of everything that can oppress is what you end up getting out of Crenshaw's analysis and mapping the margins. Her exact phrasing is something close to, I won't quote it exactly because I don't have it in front of me, but it's very close to that intersectionality is a provisional concept linking contemporary politics, which means neo-Marxist liberation and identity politics, to postmodern theory. So here is where the critical theory and postmodern theory 
fused. And postmodernism mutated by taking on this one piece of objective reality, which is systemic oppression. And um, critical theory uh, adopted the postmodern ability to deny that a truth claim is anything other than an application of politics. So this is these are the progenitors of critical race theory, the very pessimistic Derek Bell, who wanted to read negative interpretations into every advancement of history, and the um, kind of mad genius Kimberly Crenshaw, who married together critical theory from her mentor to postmodern theory as black feminist thought was readapting it to the purposes of deconstructing the sources of systemic oppression, particularly, again, knowledge and discourses, the way things are spoken about. So now we have this departure from analyzing the institutions and the laws and the material structures and the economics of a society, as Derek Bell's materialist vein would have been interested in, and a step into something different that was very postmodern, that's to now examine mindsets, the way knowledge is constructed, the way we teach, the way we think, the way we speak, how things are spoken about, and representation, who gets to be on stage, who gets to be in certain roles, who gets to be seen, because these were believed in postmodernism to be the ultimate structure, structural elements of culture, which means the ultimate structural elements of uh, society, and thus politics, and thus power. So this is the view of the world from which critical race theory arises. Um, it's a complicated story. So what does critical race theory believe as a result? Well, we can turn to, um, for example, Delgado and Stefanczyk. Uh, Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk have kind of the backbone textbook for the subject. By the way, they're both white, if you wonder. And they have spent years wrestling with that fact. Um, they have kind of the textbook, though. Critical race theory, an introduction. And Critical race theory, maybe because it arose out of law, is very concerned with creating lists of what it believes, its, it's core tenets. And so Delgado and Stefanczyk list these in the introduction to their introductory book. And so the first of these is that, that racism is the ordinary state of society. It is not aberrant. Um, this was Derek Bell's view. Uh, Derek Bell elaborated further on that, where he writes in his 1992 book faces the bottom of the well, that there's a permanence to racism. So again, that deep pessimism. So you have this ordinary, ordinary state of society that's not aberrant and has a permanence to it. It's a very sticky thing. It's almost impossible to get rid of. So there's deep pessimism about how terrible and deeply ingrained racism is, and that it's the ordinary state of everything in society. So it's the ordinary state of interactions, institutions, law, so uh, basically everything, every circumstance, every situation. So this is this is the first core tenet of critical race theory, and uh, it gives rise later to where you have scholars like Robin D'Angelo um, saying things like, the question is not, did racism take place? For that is to be assumed, but rather, how did racism manifest in this situation? Because if racism is the ordinary state of affairs, it must be present in every situation. The critical theory mindset now steps in and says, well, if racism is in every situation, 
It's our job to find it, make it visible, and agitate it. So the consequence of this first tenet of critical race theory is that everybody who takes up critical race theory believes racism is tucked away, hidden in just about everything, and it's their job to look for it constantly and to bring it up, to talk about it, make it more visible, and make it politically actionable. So anybody who takes up critical race theory and brings it into, say, their organization or that brings it into their relationships is doomed to have to look for racism in everything and talk about it in everything all the time. The, the Don't you think that was a little bit racist question becomes relevant to literally everything, and it is your core job as a critical theorist to ask that question about everything and interrogate the results. So when people get defensive for being asked if they think what they just did was racism or, or uh, that their organization itself is, is has racism baked into its core, they would then interrogate that, that uh, defensiveness as being indicative of more racism. And thus, the white fragility concept is a logical consequence of this horrendously bad first tenet that racism is ordinary rather than aberrant. So rather than seeing racism as something that happens that we wish didn't happen, it is seen as the ordinary state of affairs where non-racism, if that's even possible, would be aberrant. Plus, it's got a permanence to it that sticks. It's already a hot mess. The second tenant of critical race theory is listed as interest convergence, and this again is our concept from Derek Bell. The very pessimistic idea that uh, white people only give other races uh, opportunities, resources, status, uh, liberties, when it's also in their own self-interest to do so. And so you can already see the pessimism in this kind of analysis, but the, it's not immediately clear how, how deep of a trap this first or the second tenet of, of critical race theory is as interest convergence. So right now we're in a situation where everybody's demanding constantly that we be anti-racist. They say there's no such thing as not racist. There is only racist and anti-racist. So you have to take up anti-racism or obviously you're a bad person because you're a racist. But this is in fact not possible. And in fact, Ibram Kendi, who's topping the charts right now on his with his books, has pointed out that on Twitter recently, he pointed out that becoming anti-racist is an impossible goal. Well, part of the reason why is interest convergence, because it's in your best interest as a person, because it elevates your moral standing and you're doing the right thing to pick up anti-racism, to be anti-racist. Thus, it is in your own interest, but that's racist. So becoming anti-racist itself is a racist decision because it elevates you as a good white, if you happen to be white, or somebody who thinks that they can get it, as Robin D'Angelo has put it. So this is a problem because it's not actually possible to meet the demands of critical race theory. When the demands of critical race theory, theory are given, not only is it considered the case that racism must be present in whatever happens. So if you respond to the demands, you give in to the demands, there must be a way that racism is ordinary, not aberrant within that. But furthermore, giving into the demands themselves was a way to take the heat off of you, which was in your own self-interest and therefore was further racist. You cannot satisfy the demands of critical race theory because a critical race theory analysis of satisfying its demands is that you were being racist to do so, at least on two counts. So we're not stacking up a really great picture here. Um, you kind of put these things together, especially the first one, though. 
you can imagine, we wrote about this in Cynical Theories also, you can imagine this, this circumstance that you're a shopkeeper and uh, two people come into your shop very quickly, one after another. It's your job to, to, to greet them and do customer service with them. One person that comes in is white, one person is black. It doesn't matter your race in this situation. as It's just irrelevant to the analysis, but it's probably worst if you're white. So you, are, you now have a zero-sum choice. You have to pick, do I approach the white person or the black person first? Because you only can talk to one person at a time in this context. And so here's how critical race theory would see this. Let's say that you happen to approach the white person first. Well, critical race theory would look for the ordinary, not aberrant racism that must be present in that situation. How did racism manifest in this situation? And it would say, oh, you think that white people are first-class citizens and black people are second-class citizens, so you wanted to help the white person first and make the black person wait. That's racist. But if you were to approach the black person first, critical race theory would ask, the question is not, did racism take place? For that is to be assumed, but rather, how did racism manifest in this situation? And so it would say, oh, so you approach the black person first because you don't trust black people enough to be able to walk around the store unattended, and you actually probably wanted to get them out of the store quicker because you don't trust black people and you think that they're thieves and that's racist. So if you choose white, racist. If you choose black, racist. There are no other options. This sets you up in a double bind, and then somebody standing by or one of the people involved could easily approach you and say, don't you think that was a little bit racist, what you just did there? And all of a sudden, a vulnerability loop begins in which they can tell you how if you took up anti-racist practices, you might have done better by that. But of course, they don't tell you how you would have done it right because there was no right answer. They'll just say that whatever you didn't do would have been right uh, with some plausible argument, but it works both ways. And then the second you take up your anti-racism they can accuse you of starting to position yourself as somebody who now gets it and that it was in your own best interest and you're just trying to get the heat off of you so you're still being a little bit racist so you need to dig deeper you need to do better you need to do the work and you need to go read this stuff so you can educate yourself and you can see how the trap works and it's just the first two core tenets of critical race theory um, the third typical core tenet of critical race theory is kind of fitting with what we already talked about it's the criticism of liberalism so both the critical theory school and the postmodern school are deeply critical of liberalism. Uh, the critical theory school said, of course, that it um, still maintains hegemonies. Uh, the elites in society set, the oppressor classes of society set the terms, and everybody internalizes those terms and lives them out and lives in a false consciousness that's against their best interests, that prevents liberation from the oppression, say, of racism or whatever, what the real oppression that they mean is being not communist, uh, because a communist utopia is right on the other side of everybody realizing that they are oppressed and revolting. I guess it would have to be ethno-communist in this case, but nevertheless. And the postmodern school would see the uh, it would see the situation of liberalism as one in which a, as Foucault called it, a certain biopower or biopolitics is able to constrain society and limit how we think, uh, which cultures are more valued and which ones aren't, which discourses are elevated and which ones aren't, which knowledges are prominent and which ones aren't. And so the postmodern school would say that liberalism values methodology without checking its biases, 
it in specific liberal science, the, the processes by which we generate knowledge. Uh, it allows people to say what they will, which allows for polluted discourses. Oppressive discourses can still be maintained and disseminated and can gain power. And so all the way to the bottom, both postmodernism and critical theory are, are critical of the idea of liberalism in a profound, like radical, like get rid of it kind of way. They're not just antagonistic, but antithetical to liberalism. And this, of course, got imported into critical race theory, which sees liberalism as a way to trick black people into thinking that the world isn't just systemically racist against them all the time so that they have no chance of succeeding except by agitating through radical politics that they happen to favor. The fourth um, tenet of critical race theory kind of gets into this idea of knowledge a little bit deep, more deeply, and it posits that um, knowledge is, because knowledge itself is socially constructed, that's the postmodern view, and because science has been part of the hegemonic structures of society and it is part of the dominant discourses, whether you want the critical theory or the postmodern angle, it doesn't matter. They're both bad. Because science is so powerful, that's a white Western way of knowing that's encoded white Western values and white Western dominance, meaning white supremacy, into itself. Uh, other ways of knowing have to be forwarded. And those other ways of knowing, in particular, would include, and specifically include, storytelling and what are called counter-stories, or telling counter-stories. So... Storytelling and narrative weaving are literally explicitly given under the uh, fourth pillar of critical race theory as the way that black people forward knowledge and understand the world. And science and reason are the way that white people understand the world and how anybody tolerates this blatant racism is, as being anti-racist especially is beyond me, but it is what they believe. They say that storytelling, mostly, again, the kernel of truth there that you always have to acknowledge is that um, people have had a long history of not listening to black people well enough, especially in scientific contexts, maybe 100 and maybe even 50 years ago. And so that lack of listening begs for stories, and in particular counter stories that counter the dominant narratives to come to the fore and challenge those narratives. So there's there's some grain of truth there. It's not totally ridiculous. But the idea is still that storytelling and superstition, and that's uh, more in the post-colonial vein, I guess, than critical race theory, but storytelling, the narrative writing is the knowledge generation process of black people, whereas science, reason, evidence, logic, epistemic adequacy, and so on are the uh, master's tools of um, white Western men. That's not just me riffing with Master's Tools, by the way, that the reference is to a very famous essay by Audre Lorde, I think in the early 1980s, but I'd have to look up the date. And it's the Master's Tools will never dismantle the Master's House. And the claim is that it's obviously a reference to slavery, that it doesn't literally make sense, doesn't apparently matter. But the claim is that the master wouldn't allow his own tools to tear down his house. So in this case, what are the master's tools and what are the master's house? Well, the master's house is white dominant society. In other words, liberalism, as they conceive of the world, and uh, free democracies and things like that. Whereas the master's tools are explained very clearly in a 2017 paper written by Alison Bailey that explicitly identifies 
the critical th uh, theory approach as rooted in neo-Marxism and different than critical thinking, which is rooted in the Enlightenment. It sets those two up as, as diametrically opposed and then explains that the master's tools include epistemic adequacy, which is a fancy way of saying knowing what you're talking about. And that implies science, that implies reason, especially since the context of this is a philosophy class. That implies soundness and validity of arguments, which is explicitly given um, by Bailey as examples of the master's tools. We've since seen other examples of the master's tools would be punctuality, reliability, loyalty, productivity. Um, these are not great things to say that black people can't have and why critical race theory wants to forward this idea as a kind of radical activism and why people want to accept that are both sort of mysteries that are difficult to solve. But this is literally what the theory says. Um, it's not as much a fifth pillar if we want to move on, but one last point to raise about how critical race theory thinks about the world would be, again, to extend this knowledge idea and it gets very complicated, and I don't want to get into the very complicated epistemic oppression kind of side of it, but um, that would be Christy Dotson for anybody who wants to look her up. Christy Dotson's 2014 paper about Plato's cave or extending the Plato's cave analogy is the relevant piece to understand epistemic oppression and epistemic injustice and exclusion. But the... The critical race theory approach, which again draws both off a of critical theory school and postmodernism, sees knowledge production in a very specific way. In general, I don't really want to do a deep uh, dive into the philosophy of science about how we might produce knowledge, uh, or even into the doxastic literature and philosophy about how we might produce knowledge, but I will say that in general, you have to have a positive side to epistemology and a negative side. Epistemology being how we understand knowledge and the production of knowledge and the sharing and dissemination of knowledge. The positive side is how we forward uh, concepts or ideas that we're going to take seriously, and the negative side is how we cut down ideas that we do not want to take seriously any longer. So in philosophy, speaking broadly, what we have is the ability to forward ideas, usually through the development of philosophical theories. It should be consistent with previous philosophical theories. Epistemic adequacy matters. You have to have soundness and validity to your arguments. We often do construct logical arguments in philosophy. And the negative side is called defeasibility. We try to find counterexamples. We try to find ways that we can cut ideas down. Um, one of the blessings, I guess, for my own thinking in terms of understanding how systems work is that having a background in mathematics you're not taught to try to do the proof straight away which would be kind of um, looking for your sound and valid arguments the first thing you're taught in mathematics when you have a, a proposition or a th that you want to try to prove or conjecture is to look for counterexamples. you try to look for things that would make it false you try to defeat it right away and only after you've kind of stalled out on that do you really start trying to do a proof to valid to validate it because otherwise you're going to waste your time if there's a readily available counterexample, you're not going to get a proof because there's no such thing as a proof for that conjecture and if you think you get a proof, you're going to be embarrassed when somebody thinks up the counterexample in history. The history of mathematics is littered with examples, very very famously with series of, of prime numbers where people were like, well, they saw the first six of them 
are all prime for six examples. Nobody could calculate the seventh one because the number was too big, but they said, ah, oh, they must all be prime, and it turns out the seventh one wasn't. Uh, if they could have calculated just one more and factored it, they would have realized that they were wrong. So defeasibility cuts down bad ideas in philosophy, and this helps us get to uh, forwarding ideas that are we can expect are probably good, and then having a tool to cut away ideas that we can show are bad. In science, that we, we again usually proceed from theory, so theory gives us the grounding to make guesses about the world. Scientific theories, though, are a very robust and developed thing. They're a very specific thing, a very broad uh, description of the world that is, is derived from many, many, many interlocking uh true statements about the world, verified statements about the world. So you have a positive epistemology in science that people might do the theory, they might predict that the planet Uranus must be where it is based on the way that other planets are moving and Newtonian mechanics, and then they use this falsification uh, to cut away bad ideas. That's this negative epistemology. So they go looking if Uranus is supposed to be here. I guess it was Neptune they found this way, not Uranus. If Neptune is supposed to be here and it needs this kind of a telescope likely to see it, they can point the telescope, they can see if Neptune is there. Lo and behold, Neptune was there, so it was predicted and they found it. Um, but they thought a similar planet must be causing the uh, precession of the perihelion of Mercury, possibly as the explanation for that, but they could not find that planet because that planet doesn't exist. And it turned out that general relativity explained why that happened without the need for an extra planet. So they, they, they went looking, they found nothing. And so in general, science does the experiment, which is to say it asks the world the question and lets the world determine the answer and you just get out of the way. So that's falsification. And we cut away ideas that have been falsified and say that they're bad. Science goes a little bit further and says that ideas that cannot be falsified are not valid as scientific statements at all. Philosophy is a little more open-ended, but it does have a similar kind of poor regard for statements that cannot be defeated, that are indefeasible. Uh, as you will notice, the accusation of racism or systemic racism in critical race theory is neither falsifiable nor defeasible, so neither of those schools of thought would take it seriously. Hence, Allison Bailey writing a paper in 2017 saying we need to get rid of epistemic adequacy because it would completely upend her theory and throw it in the toilet where it belongs. And flush 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 it again and flush it again because it's just that bad. And uh, critical, critical race theory, but also these other so-called grievance studies, as I've called them in the past with Helen and Peter, uh, these, these critical social justice theories, as we should call them in general, do not proceed using either of those approaches to positive and negative epistemology. Their positive epistemology is mostly derived from postmodernism and it is lived experience. So if all of knowledge and all of all of our ideas are uh, the result of politics in the political or in the in the postmodern view as Foucault maintained and if you look at Jacques Derrida and his uh, kind of like post-structuralist linguistic claptrap, uh, if meaning is infinitely deferred from the text and it's impossible to tell what any word truly means because it only means things in relationship to other words, then you have a problem with, with anything like 
theory properly forwarding ideas, you have a, a problem because that's a political process. And what if your politics have bias? Of course, there's a correction for that by thinking you have the one right politic of the world, which we see happening definitely in the critical social justice woke movement. But the answer the postmodernists gave was lived experience, that you can get into your own lived experience, and that's where the true potentialities of being are. That's where real knowledge lies. If knowledge can't be found in language, and if knowledge can't be found in authenticated true statements, because those are actually political assertions, knowledge can only be found in our lived experience. And so the importation of postmodern theory into this radical critical politics that Kimberly Crenshaw did was actually the importation of forwarding lived experience as the positive epistemology, the way that we forward ideas. So I feel like this is true, therefore it's probably true. Which given that human beings are, by the way we naturally think, prone to two cognitive biases, especially among many others that are confirmation bias, which is that we confirm that which we already think is true, and desirability bias, which is that we confirm that which we want to be true, which you have to be careful with want here because nobody wants there to be racism, but everybody wants to be right. So they don't want to be wrong about their theory. They want to be right in their grievance if they've taken up a grievance victimhood mentality that they've been cheated and it's not their own responsibility for any of their failures or shortcomings, which is sometimes true and sometimes it's not true. So lived experience becomes the positive epistemology and the negative epistemology is der derived from the critical method, which is problematizing everything. So what does problematizing mean? Problematizing means, in kind of the first layer we'll say, problematizing means identifying the ways that something can cause offense or more specifically can uphold systemic oppression and thus prevent liberation from oppression systemic oppression. So that's what's problematic. So anything that goes against liberation from oppression, systemic oppression, or anything that can be construed as upholding systemic oppression is problematic, thus invalid. So their epistemology is forwarding their own solipsistic beliefs about the world, their own navel-gazing narcissism, and often grievance-oriented uh, interpretations of their own experiences in the world. That's your positive claim on the on, on knowledge. And the only thing that's there to cut it down, because you can't turn to defeasibility, that's epistemic adequacy. You can't turn to science, that's the white, those are both white supremacist tools, those are the master's tools, those are unacceptable, those uphold oppression. The only thing that's left is asking, does this offend somebody? who is systemically oppressed according to the way we've defined a systemic oppression. So you can see how their epistemology is basically unassailable by anything sensible and traps you into the victimhood mentality that is so strongly characterizes their pessimistic and cynical theory about everything in the world. That's how they think. That's what is constitute when they say, you know, our lived realities or our lived experience or or your other ways of knowing or uh, um, our knowledges, plural, that's what they're talking about. When they say we need to consider other knowledges in mathematics, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about ideas that conform to their, their interpretations of lived experience, which have to have been filtered through theory, that are only cut down in terms of how theory sees things as preventing liberation from systemic oppression. 
It is a terrible way to adjudicate what's going on in the world. And now we should put an exclamation mark on that because we have to recall what liberation from systemic oppression means in the context of the Frankfurt School where it came from, which is that uh, systemic oppression is that which keeps people from realizing that they should effect a revolution to get to the communist utopia. Marxist communist utopia is liberation from oppression, whereas uh, everything that causes people not to realize they need to revolt to get to it is systemic oppression. So this is critical race theory. This is what we're looking at. To kind of characterize this just briefly and wrap up a couple of main characters in today's world that we're running into very frequently are Robin D'Angelo and um, Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, so these two people are both famous because of their anti-racism views. They both have an approach to anti-racism. Robin D'Angelo's shows up in White Fragility, her very famous 2018 book. And Ibram Kendi's shows up in his very famous, I think, 2019, but I'd have to check the date on that book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And what I kind of want to tie in is why it seems like those two share similar ideas, but somehow they seem incompatible. Um, Robin D'Angelo's uh, theory is a bit more hodgepodge, and it mixes in a lot of veins of, of thought that um, Kendi doesn't. Uh, D'Angelo explicitly relies, for instance, on the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who was a vicious rival to the uh, postmodernists, and he wasn't even particularly fond of the critical theorists, although he still had that critical theory vein to his thought, and he was still obsessed with seeing how power operates through systems in society that the postmodernists had, but he had a very different view. But that said, uh, D'Angelo's approach to anti-racism is very, very deeply rooted in the postmodern critical race theory tradition as it spun into uh, critical whiteness studies. So her flavor is very much going to be concerned with discourses, how things are spoken about, what people's reactions and mindsets reveal about their hidden ideas and character, that power operates through everybody, that white people are all therefore complicit in upholding systems of racism by the way they talk about things, the way they think about things by the way that they fail to engage with uh, critical race theory or whiteness in a uh, fully critical way. And Ibram Kendi, however, is much more materialist. He's much more interested in looking at policies and outcomes and even economics and saying that which created disparate outcomes is in fact systemically racist, uh, kind of a racism of the gaps. If, uh, if a disparate outcome came out that was negative for uh, mostly uh, Hispanic, but more generally brown and black people, and especially black people, then it was racist. Um, and if, if not, then it wasn't. So he's much more materialist. And actually, you can read that same kind of pessimism of Derrick Bell throughout kind of Kendi, Kendi's writing. But for Robin D'Angelo, you would see that she's not able to believe that a black person could be racist. And Kendi argues that people of all races can be racist, uh, and it depends on the outcomes. And so it's, it's a very different kind of analysis. And it's actually important to realize that those two aren't compatible. <laughs> they, it's funny that we just get shoved, these things shoved in our faces. They're not actually theoretically compatible with one another. One is a materialist branch that's Kendi, and one is a postmodernist branch with some other things kind of uh, 
smashed in, and that's D'Angelo. So uh, those two approaches are actually somewhat different. Uh, just as a kind of a worthy note, I mentioned Angela Davis, the student of Herbert Marcuse, uh, in Kendi's earlier book, Stamped from the Beginning, he profiles five key figures he sees in the history of American racism, and one of the five is Angela Davis. So Angela Davis, thus Marcusean thought, was very influential on Kendi, and of course was also very influential on Derrick Bell. So you can kind of see that line of thought there in him, whereas Robin D'Angelo seems to have derived most of her work from looking a queer theory. She actually was interested in trans stuff before she got into the race hustle. Um, but she's based her work largely off of people like Barbara Applebaum, who is the white complicity person in her book, Being White, Being Good, where she develops the idea of white complicity. All white people are complicit in systems of racism that benefit them. And they basically do that by upholding a tacit social contract that, to continue benefiting them. And that's socialized into people through discourses and the way people are, are raised. So, um, that's a much more postmodern line where, where you see a great deal of that, that kind of same intersectional. I mean, D'Angelo is very interested in the intersectional analysis, which is very postmodern, as Kimberly Crenshaw pointed out, that it is the provisional link between contemporary politics, again, meaning neo-Marxist, radical, liberationist politics, and postmodern theory. So that's a quick overview of critical race theory, where it comes from, why its core claim is true, and then what they do with it is insane. I guess kind of a wrap-up point there then. Uh, I pointed out earlier at the very beginning of this that critical race theory correctly posits that race in the current context as a social construction was invented by white people in order to uh, systemically oppress or do racism against black people and to create white supremacy, which I think is a largely true claim. Uh, well, we've for that that was a long time ago. That was explicitly in the 16th century, and not to say that it was quick, but we very slowly, especially after Scottish liberalism was developed in the uh, 18th century, thus laying down the promises in the American Constitution and Declaration of Independence: all men created equal, slavery never explicitly mentioned the founding fathers of the United States knowing that slavery was wrong and incompatible with their vision of a free society, but not knowing how to get rid of it themselves. You see the seeds of liberalism coming into play then in the late 18th century, leading into a progressive era that within 75 years leads to the abolition of slavery across almost all of the developing, what would be now the developed world the advancing democracies of the time. Within another century, uh, institutional racism made illegal across most of the same, if not all of the same, after that. So within, you know, 200 years of the birth of liberalism, we take institutions that have been with us from the dawn of human history, but in particular, this imbuing of racial categories with social significance, and we chip away at it and chip away at it and chip away at it until it no longer has any legal standing. There's no more colonialism. There's no more slavery, at least in these advanced Western democracies. It still exists in other parts of the world uh, that are not advanced Western democracies, um, where liberalism is not, as it turns out. So liberalism chips away at these things, and it does so institutionally, and it does so legally, and it does so increasingly thereafter. It wasn't perfect, but 
socially and culturally to the point by where this critical race theory started to really emerge in the early 1990s. There was still definitely racism, and some things were still even probably systemically racist in ways that make sense to talk about. And yet, much progress had been had, and it had been achieved by liberalism specifically. And so it becomes very peculiar that you have critical race theory come along to try to re-imbue social significance into racial categories. So again, the kind of the short, short version of that is racism, according to critical race theory, which I would agree with, was mostly born in its modern incarnation by creating social categories of race and putting social significance into those racial categories. This was mostly done initially in the 16th and 17th century, got really amped up in the 18th century, and then started to get cut down as liberalism came into the picture. Liberalism cut away social significance and racial categories to the point where racism was on its deathbed, though not dead. And then critical race theory comes in and says, no, we're going to put race, we're going to put social significance back into racial categories, and we're going to put racism on life support because it's useful to our political activism to do so. And now you see them saying racism's everywhere in society, racism's everywhere. We got to focus on racism all the time. And the answer to racism is our prescription, our analysis, our program, our very expensive training module that you have to sign up for, or you too are a racist. And so it's very hard not to see critical race theory as intentionally keeping racism literally in the exact way that they describe its origins, on life support, so that they can use it for political activism. And again, the question we all have to ask ourselves is why we keep falling for it. Why are we mainlining this? All we have to do is say, no, we can do better than this. I, I've checked with myself. I'm actually not racist, and that's good enough. And I'm going to treat every, every single individual as an individual and I'm going to listen to their problems. If they say that they feel like they're being cheated, I want to hear about it. And then I want to look into it with rigorous methods. And that's not a feature of white supremacy that's caring about the problem. That's caring about the problem and wanting to find a solution to use rigorous methods. Those are not master's tools. Those are everybody's tools. And if there's a master's house that's keeping people down, it will dismantle them because nothing else could. And we're not going to use the master's tools to prop up master's house so that we can keep complaining that it's standing. We just have to say no.